Welcome back, dear listeners, for another week of Torah study. This week for a double portion of Achrimot Kedoshim. You know, we've talked a bit on the show about how the Jewish world benefits from making Torah more accessible and inviting in all voices. But it's important to acknowledge that the Bible, both the OG and New Testament, has been used to instill and perpetrate a lot of hate for millennia. And I think it's important that sometimes, not always, because we could easily get stuck in the weeds, but sometimes, we hit those problematic portions head-on and try to understand them from as many angles as possible to reinterpret and therefore defang them, allowing us a more liberated relationship to this holy text. This week, Jos Singer joins Rabbi Batshir and I to talk about a line from the so-called clobber passages that have been at the heart of a lot of pain for a lot of people. A man shall not lay with a man as he does with a woman. Our conversation aims to understand possible aspects of the historical context behind such a law, as well as the damage that this line has done, and how we as a people can and should overcome it. As you'll hear, Jos has a long list of accolades and a pretty prolific career. But for today's conversation, Jos joins us as a trans man and Magid who has spoken openly and beautifully about his journey of understanding his place in the world and how Judaism has helped him find it. Jos has an incredible talk you can watch on YouTube titled Go, Go to Yourself. And if you've been with us, you may remember that line from an early part of Torah with Abraham. But Jos makes some beautiful connections between his own life story and that of our forebears, just as he'll do with us today. I want to define some things before we get into today's conversation. Rabbi Batshir mentions a ketubah, which is a marriage contract a Jewish couple signs at their wedding. I can very clearly imagine my parents' ketubah hanging on the wall in my childhood home. We also hear the Hebrew letters yud Hey vav Hey, which spell out one of the names for God. If you remember from our conversation with Rabbi Amichai Lau-Levi, there are many. And we hear about Chevruta, which is a small group of people that get together to study Talmud, which is the book of Jewish laws and the central text for rabbinic Judaism, dating back to circa 200. There are three shout-outs this week that I want to highlight here. One is Keshet, an organization that equips others with the skills and knowledge to build LGBTQ-affirming communities, creating spaces in which all queer Jewish youth feel seen and valued and advance LGBTQ rights nationwide. The other is Svara, led by Rabbi Benay Labi, of whom we are a huge fan over here, which provides rigorous Talmud study as spiritual practice to all who want to learn in an environment that recognizes as crucial the insights of transgender, intersex, queer, lesbian, bisexual, and gay Jews. Lastly is the New York-based congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the world's largest LGBT synagogue, which has actively been at the forefront of the battle for equality and justice for people of all sexual orientations and gender identities. If you're in New York for the High Holy Days, I highly recommend their services. There's a lot to talk about today. I'm really honored that you've joined us for another week. We have just blown past the 25,000 listener mark. So if you are interested in supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash the study. We will gladly help you part with as little as $5 a month to keep this ship afloat. And we need just 11 more five-star ratings on iTunes to hit 150. And those ratings help a lot. So if you don't mind jumping in there when the episode is over, if you haven't already, and feel free to reach out and say hi on Twitter at study underscore show anytime, day or night. I'll be there. On to the show. I am very excited to welcome back Rabbi Batshir Torshio, Senior Educator at JCC San Francisco, 
Ravi Bachir, thank you so much for being here. Ravi, it's great to be with you again. I'm very excited to share this conversation. Amen. And I am so honored to have the opportunity to be in conversation with Magid Jos Singer, congregational leader at Chochmat Halev, a center for Jewish spirituality in Berkeley, California. Thank you for being here, Jos. It's my pleasure, Aviv. I'm, I'm psyched to dive into this gnarly text. Absolutely. You know, Jos, I, I have this bio for you that says that you've been a firefighter and oceanographic researcher, scuba diver, music teacher, symphonic percussionist, barista, and now you're a Magid. And since you've seemingly checked the boxes for every single one of my dream jobs, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey. And perhaps you could help us define for our listeners what Magid means. You betcha. Um, Yes, you just... uh defined my kind of uh, career of getting to Magid. Uh, we missed that I've also got a master's degree in Jewish studies. So I did do a little bit of, um, you know, book learning as well. Um, right. A Magid is literally, it means a teller, one who tells. And the way I like to describe it is like, I'm a rabbi without the badge. Right, mm-hmm. like I'm the, I'm the like you know in a perfect world we're gonna have cops who've got badges and guns and all of that stuff and sitting right next to them there's gonna be a counselor, there's gonna be somebody who knows how to talk to people there's gonna be somebody who jumps out in in first and says hey brother how you doing hey sister what's happening hey sibling where are we going you know is there a problem here let me talk to you, right. And I'm not going to make any laws. I'm not going to arrest anybody. I'm not going to shoot anybody. I, I don't have that authority. I don't have that power. What I have is words and stories and tradition. And I'm going to bring that to everything that I do and try to make being a part of this people as meaningful and as juicy and as fulfilling as I possibly can. So that's my gig. I do everything a rabbi does. I do weddings. I lead services. You know, I bar mitzvahs if I have to. Um, you know, uh, funerals, <laughs> all of that stuff. But I'm not going to tell somebody that they're doing it right or wrong. That's not. That's not in my. I haven't been given that authority, and I don't want it. It sounds like uh, bar and bat mitzvahs might be your least favorite uh, aspect of the job. You know, I'm not good at it. I love them. I love going to them, but I am so nonlinear. And teen, like early teens, adolescents need linear people. And oh my gosh, those poor little monkeys, they sit next to me and I start riffing and I'm like all over it. And they're just like terrified, you know, it's too much. So they love me and I love them, but I'm not their, I'm not a good teacher for them. I can't get them from zero to 60 to learn how to chant Torah and do liturgy. I'm not good at it. I'm good with hanging out with them though. They're fun. They're interesting people. I have to add here that when I've been immersing myself these past few days and weeks in um, Leviticus, the horror on the face of B'nai Mitzvah when their portion comes out of Leviticus and they have to read things like snapping the heads off of turtle doves as a sacrifice and trying to make sense. You know, we're here as rabbis and magid and teachers um, trying to help them bring meaning to this text, which is exactly what we're doing here today. It's It can be in- incredibly daunting. <laughs> when your portion comes out of Leviticus. Well, I am glad that this is not my bar mitzvah, um, but still very glad to be in conversation with you both. Rabbi Bachir, we find ourselves in Achremot Kedoshim, a double Parsha. Would you do the, us the honor of walking us through this week's Parsha summary? Absolutely. Right. Double portion. Achremot after the death and Kedushim, holiness. This book of Leviticus is sometimes called, in addition to Torah Kohanim, the instructions for the priests, it's also called the Holiness Code. And we'll get to that in just a moment. So after the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, we just left that horrific scene. God tells Moses to tell Aaron that he cannot freely come into the Holy of Holies. This is a persistent trope, right? There's this this space that we can enter, but how do you enter it? And don't get too close. Prepare yourself, but how do you prepare yourself? That's what we're dealing with in this this chapter, actually, throughout Leviticus. 
the central and the most holy part of the tabernacle, the center part where the Ark of the Covenant, that contract that we received at Sinai, is kept in there. So it's a very excited place. Aaron and all of the high priests that follow him were allowed to enter this area, we read, only once a year on the 10th day of the seventh month, what today we call Yom Kippur. And the portion continues with God giving commandments, again, regarding how animals are to be sacrificed. The people in this chapter are reminded to not consume blood, which reminds me of my grandmother draining beef or brisket in the kitchen sink, having kosher salt all over it, draining all of the blood out of it, giving that meat that wonderfully delicious brown color. We're told not to eat animal, any animals that have died or been killed by wild beasts. The fascinating ritual of the scapegoat is defined in this portion as well. Azazel, right? So all of the inequities of the Israelites are placed by the high priest on the head of this poor goat, Azazel. Interesting and not surprising, I suppose, that Azazel means averter. It also means fallen angel. So here we are placing all of the iniquities onto this animal, very folklorish, and we send, or the priest sends, that Azazel off of a cliff uh, with those sins placed upon it. And the Parsha ends with rules regarding sexual relations, which we're going to get into. And yet another warning not to copy or follow the customs of the Egyptians or the Canaanites. I want to just riff for a second on this. There's so much here in Aharimot. We're going to talk in a moment about the pasuk that's related to sexual relations, but I want to also just sit for a moment with the opening of the line of this parsha, Vayedaber Adonayat Moshe, Aharimot, Shnei Benei Aharon, Bekarvatam Lifnei Adonai Vavamutu, Adonai spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they drew too close to the presence of the Lord. So death is in the title of this parsha, and death appears twice in this one pasuk. And I wonder, why is it that right now we need this reminder of that shocking death? Because we know that typically the Torah is economical with words. The biblical authors are emphasizing the danger involved in either seeking for the wrong reason or getting too close to God, which in the context of the Mishkan and the wilderness seems counterintuitive. The other word in this pasuk, in this verse that stands out, is karov, as in bekarvatam. These guys got too close, Nadav and Avihu. To get close to, to be near, is what this word means to approach, and it also means at its core or its root to go within. And here again, I spoke earlier about the the vertical metaphor for closeness or understanding where they're reaching to God in the heavens, which we inherited from polytheism, but now God is coming down into our midst. It's, it's dynamic and it's quite audacious um, to be that close to God, and evidently it's very dangerous. The entire Torah is a sort of love letter between God and God's creation and God trying to figure out how to get close to us. And of course, we uh, finding ways to seek God's presence. I mean, there's a ketubah signing ceremony at Sinai, right? This is, there's something very, it's beyond romantic. It's, it's intensely intimate. It's an invitation to come into intimacy. And yet it can be incredibly dangerous as any, I guess, any deep intimacy can be. And I'm going to stop with this. I was speaking with Joseph about this earlier. I'm reminded of the four rabbis who seek to enter Pardes, the orchard, the garden, and the horrific consequences as a result for at least three, well, for three of them. And again, this is another stark example of our need to seek the divine and what can happen when we take that trip without proper preparation and intention. And again, I think the entire book of Leviticus, on the surface of it, is an attempt to keep our minds and hands busy with the work of the tabernacle and the preparation of sacrifices and an attempt to give something to God, to receive something from God. But I don't think, I would venture to say, that we are yet psychologically or spiritually attuned enough to corrove, to get close to God, 
We keep trying that, and therein lies the tension, I think, for me, throughout these chapters. Yashikoach, that was beautiful. Jos, I'm curious to know what you make of this idea of, you know, it seems like throughout Judaism, a part of the journey is to get close to God, and yet here is a warning uh, not to get too close. You know, I think it depends how you're understanding what that God is. I totally agree with Bachir that ultimate power, that, you know, source of existence, the, you know, the, the human desire to compete with that God, to be like that God, to learn its secrets, to unleash that power through our own hands mm. is quite dangerous, as we can see. And so I think there, the, the, the Torah cautions us again and again and again and again. And because it's Jewish, there has to be another hand. And the other hand is, hey, it's within you. It's all around you. You're a part of it already. You're doing your thing. You don't need any extra power. The power you have and the godliness that you hold in your fleshy, funky, you know, warty self is more than enough. All you really need to do is liberate that, right? And so the mystical tradition is run with that idea and the Hasidic, you know, the modern Hasidic movement ran with that idea. And now that it's kind of been relayed to the radical fringe, far progressive, far liberal world to run with that idea. And who knows who we're going to hand it off to. But this idea that, you know, we are surrounded by miracles, right? And there's, there's a verse in uh, Kitavo in Deuteronomy, I want to say like 47, 28 or something like that, that says, you know, all this horrible stuff is going to befall you. Like horrible. It sounds like Stephen King wrote it. You know, like this is going to happen and the sky is going to turn to iron and, you, you know, the daintiest of men will eat their own children. I mean, it's just like, Wah! it's like talk about you don't want to give that one to a bar mitzvah kid is the worst. <laughs> and in the middle of this diatribe, there's this one little line. It's like the one gas station town. You know, you blink and you missed it. It's, it's right in the middle of this whole thing. And it says, and all of this, because when, you, when your blessings were abundant, you didn't serve with joy in your heart. Right? So when we're not noticing the God in the blade of grass that's growing up through the crack in the sidewalk, right? Or the little momentary acts of kindness that are going on around us all the time, or just the incredible generosity of the universe in the spring when all the, what looks like dry, dead twigs all of a sudden burst out with beautiful green leaves and flowers and butterflies and everything's like amazing and abundant and fruitful. When we don't notice that, we end up living in these miserable places and then from those miserable places we seek the garden it's like dude you're in the freaking garden okay the garden might be five blades of grass you know at the at the edge of the asphalt but that's a garden and you need to see it because that's where that's that's god too so i think that it's this you know on the one hand god is the you know the the core the like nuclear core you know, and you want to get into the reactor. You want to get all the way in. And on the other hand, it's like, yeah, it's like a little glimmer. And you want to, you want to collect the glimmers too. And if we can train our hearts to be happy with the glimmers, we'll probably start being a glimmer ourselves. <laughs> so that, that's my riff on, on, on the riff. That's beautiful, Jose. You know, I this morning was reading, I'm sure this is on your bookshelf, um, Seek My Face, the Jewish Mystical Theology from Arthur Green, who I had the great pleasure of studying with down in Los Angeles. And what he talks about is similar to what you're saying and is very appealing to me. And I thought where you were going to go with this was that this thing, this instruction, this Torah, this God is not 
so high in the heavens that it cannot be reached. It is not in the depths of the ocean that you cannot bring it up. We are bringing Torah and God down. And in fact, in this portion, God is bringing God's self down. It is not on the mountaintop. We are not all Moses. We are not all meant to take that trek. And I think Arthur Green uh, describes it so beautifully. He says that, you know, our earliest ancestors were diggers of wells. We go deep. Right. And that's what we're doing here with Torah, with our lives. And he says here, I'm I'm quoting um, Arthur Green, spiritual growth, connection with God, connection to Torah is a matter of uncovering new depths rather than attaining new heights. And I think that to your beautiful illustration, once we can be fully present in this world with the misery, with the despair, with the beauty, with the promise and the potential of rebirth, that is when we have access to those glimmers. And I I really like that. It is not out of our hands. It is right here with us. And in fact, when we come together like this, that last letter of yud Hey vav Hey, that Hey is the Shekhinah, the divine female who is here with us in this space. This is what we're taught. So we brought her down and she's sitting with us, dwelling in this space, learning Torah with us. And so what do we do with this drat text? (laughs) It does get gnarly, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Let's get a little gnarly. This Parsha includes laws surrounding sexual prohibitions, like Rabbi Bashir said, sometimes called the clobber passages, which have been used as an exclusionary bludgeon from time immemorial. Specifically, there's Leviticus 18.22, which states, Do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is an abhorrence. And there's Leviticus 20.13, which states, If a man lies with a male as one lies with a woman, the two of them have done an abhorrent thing. They shall be put to death. Their blood guilt is upon them. Rabbi Batshir, in thinking about the writing of this text, what do you make of these passages? There are so many different ways to read these passages. I want to emphasize that for all of the prohibitions that are listed throughout Torah, this one's mentioned twice, maybe three times if we go back to Genesis when Lot is banging on the door of the inhabitants of that town and says, send these men out. We want to be intimate with these men. There are a couple of things, Raviv. One is we get to interpret each one of these words, Zachar, Shechev, Toaveh, what it means to actually lie with a woman. Why does it say woman? Why doesn't it say don't lie with a male? I think I want to explore that in a moment. The other thing is that just on a, on a historical um, level, semen and seed was precious and so precious that you could not spill that. I'm actually going to say this willy nilly. Um, when you're thinking about creating a tribe and a tr- and wanting that tribe to survive and all of the vulnerabilities of that tribe, you use that seed for one purpose only. And I think that's one thing that is being stated here. Perhaps I actually, I, I'm a little bit trepidatious going describing this in that way, but to say that there is much more discussed about about semen in the Torah than there is about laying with a male or laying with a female. And I think that should be emphasized. These were people who wanted to survive. You know, they had to procreate, whether they were gay or straight or, you know, we're we're talking binary as the Torah does. But we know for sure, um, certainly in the Talmud, that there were discussions about non-binary identifications that included sexual relations. So this is only one that I think is emphasizing more, not homosexuality as much as what are you doing with your seed, brother? So I don't know if that's overly simplistic, but it's one place I go with this. I would back you up on that one, Bachir, because the preoccupation of early Judaism, and particularly rabbinic Judaism after, after temple times, with procreation is profound. It's profound because, you know, you got to remember this is before, you know, any kind of significant medical amendments to pregnancy and to fertility and all of that. And the first stories of the Torah, they're all about this anxiety. The, the, you know, the forefathers and the foremothers, they're all barren. 
right? Like that, that that's, it starts from, from Abraham on that there's this neuroses, I would go so far as to say, around, are we going to get pregnant? Is there going to be children? They'll go to any, any length to have children, including surrogates. You can't get around that anxiety. And given that there is that anxiety, the rabbis are going to lean on Torah verses that help them uphold this mission to procreate and to expand the community internally, especially like under Roman occupation, at which point you couldn't even take in converts without risking your life, right? Conversion was punishable by death for both the convert and whoever welcomed them in. So the only way to grow and to stay strong and, you know, maybe outlive your oppressors was through childbirth. I'm not supporting this line. Let me just make myself perfectly clear, but to put it in that context. And I'll tell you how, how wild. Okay, I got to share this piece of Talmud with you because it is, whoa, it is like one of my favorite weirdest pieces of Talmud ever. I know where you're going with this, Jess. Here we go. So it's in Yevamot, which is an entire tractate that is devoted to funky marriages. Like what happens when your marriage goes funky and, you know, who do you get to remarry with and blah, blah, blah. That's the short version. It's loaded with these alternative gender identities. So there's Ish and Isha, which is man and woman. I would argue what they really mean when they say Ish and Isha is father and mother. Viable dad who is hopefully proven. His fertility has been proven by having had children. And Isha is fully Isha when she has satisfied the, uh, the requirement to be fruitful and multiply, when she has become a mother. So what they really are talking about are potential or hopefully proven fathers and potential or hopefully proven mothers. But they recognize there's a whole bunch of people who fit in between those categories, people who aren't morphologically obviously male or female, or who are morphologically both male and female. And because the rabbis were also preoccupied with who does what, like a very compartmentalized set of obligations that were held by various people based on what they could or could not do easily within the context of the of the society which is to say you are crazy if you ask a nursing mother who's been up with a colicky baby all night oh that she has to get up at sunrise and lay to fill in and daven shachrit and pray you know a full service in the morning and no that you are not going to ask that woman to do that because she's the only person in the household who can take care of these babies. So if you think that that's an important part of your culture, then you're going to put it on somebody else. Obviously, in a, in a binary gendered system, you're going to put it on the man. He slept through the night. He can get up at the sunrise and do the davening. So everything that was time-obligated, time-oriented at, at obligations, men took those. Women had other obligations, but they were not time-specific. Time okay, what do you do with somebody who is both male and female? What are their obligations? Where do they fit? What do you do with somebody who is neither clearly male nor female? What do you do with somebody who is, you know, who was uh, male but born atesticular? There's no, it doesn't ever develop into a, a mature, quote unquote, male, right? It doesn't develop secondary sex, sex characteristics. What do you do with somebody who was born with testicles, but they got damaged severely when they were a child? And they're never going to develop secondary sex characteristics either. What do you do with a woman who we don't know why, but for some reason she's not developing as one would expect either? What do you do with those folks? Well, the amazing thing is that in Judaism, the rabbis kept trying to answer that question. They never said, kick them out. They never said, you know, send them, you know, send them out into the desert or stone them to death or get rid of them by any means possible. No, they were like, okay, we got more people. 
How are we going to give them a job? How are we going to make their life contribute to this culture? That's so radical in the time. It, it's it is, and I want to I want to point out, and I think that it can sometimes be overlooked that those people in between the binary that sort of the the variations of who we are as human beings exists right here in this portion when it talks about who can bring sacrifices it doesn't say the one who uh has not developed in a certain way or doesn't look like me or doesn't look like you they're not rejected they're not even on the fringes of this narrative they're right here alongside of us they're listed right here in leviticus the person who looks like this the eunuch or um everything that you just described jose and i think part of our our work here and our obligation as we study torah is to look at all of it and look at all of them but i just really want to emphasize that everyone is here with us everyone is part of this kihila Everyone's part of this tribe. Yeah, they are us, right? Like it's not that they're here with us. They They are are us, us, right? So to go back to this anxiety, though, about the rabbinic anxiety about how do you bring, you know, the right folks together so that children will result, they're pondering, well, why, if God wanted us to you know, be fruitful and multiply? Why, if God wanted us to expand so that we become like the stars in the sky and the sand near the sea and all of that, why were our first ancestors infertile? They're really torn up by this question in, in, in Yevamot where they're dealing with all of this stuff and gender and da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, they, they, they jump into this conversation about infertility in Abraham and Sarah. Why were why were those the ones chosen to start this people if they couldn't even have a kid and they had to be helped by God? So one rabbi, <laughs> oh my gosh, Rav Ami says, Sarah and Avraham were tumtumim. A tumtum is somebody who it doesn't have obvious uh, male or female genitalia, right? It's not like androgynous who had an obvious, like maybe, uh, you know, phallus and breasts, Right? Like, it's not like that, where you've got, that's obvious. This is something, we don't even know what it is. Rav Ami says, Avraham and Sarah were tum-tum. They were genderqueer. And, and gives a couple of proof texts as to, as to why, why he says that. And he, he quotes these pieces that says, one that's about, a, rock, a hewing from a rock and digging a, a well. And he says, God performed sexual reassignment surgery on them. God intervened and tweaked their bodies so that they could have a child. But that the reason they couldn't before that was because they were tum tum. Hmm. For a genderqueer person like myself, as a trans man, I look at that and go, oh my God. Judaism was was founded. The foundational couple of Judaism were genderqueer, according to the rabbis. Hmm. Now, one wonders about Rav Ami at this point. I want to know more about this guy, right? Who is this guy? How could he have seen that? How could he have thought that? 2,000 years ago or whatever, you know, more or less. How could he have thought that if he didn't have lived experience of that part of humanity? Friday Night with One Table is all about feeling good, and they're here to help you hold that magic of Shabbat while protecting the health and safety of one another. It's a difficult and isolating time, but even when you're alone, Shabbat is a built-in reminder to do something a little special for yourself. Plus, One Table helps out with small financial gifts so you can make sure it's extra special. Head to onetable.org to see how you can connect to the experience of Shabbat in a way that is new and, perhaps surprisingly, sacred. Joseph, you're reminding me of the ambiguity in the relationship of Abraham and Sarah throughout Torah. There's a great ambiguity about their uh, relationship with one another. 
And I think this really, um, this really gets to that. They're not even, they're not sure what they are to one another. And they play with that throughout. Including, going back to, to this week's parasha or parashiot, including that they might have been siblings, which is flat out, you know, like uh, outlawed right here in the Torah. So there's this beautiful tension between what is permitted and what is not permitted and what is actually happening on the ground. And we know that like Judaism would be nothing if it weren't for all the messes that it seeks to untangle or incorporate by this incredible rabbinic ability to dance around the ideas in the text or through them or, you know, pull different threads together and weave them into something brand new, including Leviticus 18.22. And as Batshir pointed out earlier, it's a conditional statement if, I mean, just thinking like an early rabbi, if Hashem had really wanted us to never have a man lie with another man, you know, God is not a blabbermouth, surely God would have just said, nisht. No man shall have any kind of sex with another man, period, boom, done, chuck. But the line is blown open by this additional if, you know, clause that says, as with a woman. So now you have this whole thing to, under, to try to unpack. What do you mean, as with the woman? Do you mean don't sleep with a man when what you really want to be sleeping with is a woman? Does it mean honor the man? You know, sleep with a man like you would sleep with a man, not as you would with a woman. Right? Don't use him in a way that is counter to his nature. You know, the rabbis get very graphic about exactly what this means and gets it down to like, you know, like the nitty gritty of like, well, there can't be penetration, but you can have everything else. And in fact, that's, that is how it's interpreted in, in some modern Orthodox communities that accept uh, homosexuality. We welcome you into our kihila. Um, and they counsel with rabbis. I know this firsthand, having spoken with rabbis who counsel people who come to them and not rejecting their lifestyle or not denying their, their love and their commitment, but saying, okay, everything but, which is, I, I suppose, I mean, I don't know, just how do you feel about that? Is that, is that an advancement or is that still arcane? I mean, it goes back to who's interpreting these lines. Maybe, you know, queer folks should be involved in that conversation. It is remarkable to me that these lines have such a tiny footprint in the entire Torah. Tiny. I mean, really and truly. There's so much more about, you know, don't abuse the stranger. Now that should be, it's 36 times that that is mentioned. That should be at the top of our list of like the last person you want to be dealing with is somebody who is a jerk to the stranger. That should be the ultimate, oi, you know, disgusting, get feh, go away. No, somehow these two little lines that are identical, so really only one utterance, that the, the differences between uh, Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13 are minimal, really minimal. The fact that there's, you know, has this has been used as, as you said, a, cl- a hammer to clobber queer folks. It's a Shonda. And even the rabbis themselves made lots and lots of exceptions around this. It is time. And as, as Rabbi B'nai Lappi teaches with her life, you're not going to change the laws. You're not going to change the culture until you have a few pesky, persistent, radical folks who say, I want in, who don't go running but who come in and say, I want Talmud, I want the law, I want to help make the new laws, I want to be a part of this and be part of the dynamic, edgy, you know, sometimes heated, confrontational culture that I might be able to influence 
and change so that, as she says, Judaism is unrecognizable to me in 200 years. I looked up a definition, or, or sorry, commentary about 1822 and 2013 from Keshet. And I was, I was stunned and I was delighted that that's precisely what we do. We look at that and we say, I'm not going to run from this and I'm not even, I can reject it, but I'm, I'm going to engage with it. And the way that Keshet uh, commented on these uh, pusukim was to say that I'm not going to be abusive in my intimate relationships with people. And they broke it down word by word in that Sfara style that is absolutely inspired. We don't run in the opposite direction. We say, I, I want to bring my voice to it. It's like my Hevruta in Talmud. I think I shared this with you, Jos. We're studying Talmud and she said to me, she just stopped and pounded her fist on the table remotely. And she said, I'm just so sick and tired of the male voice here. Where's the female voice here? Where's the female voice? And we sat with that for a moment. And then I said to her, it's right here. We're to, as, as two women who identify as female, I said, that's what we're doing. We are writing and adding our voices to this codified text. So, so glad we can do that. You know, I love trying to understand the historical context of uh, where these passages came from. And like you said, Jos, they have such a tiny footprint on the Torah as a whole. And yet the social cost of them for the past 3,000 years has been enormous. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that social cost throughout time, both generally and for yourself. Well, you know, Noam Siena wrote an incredible book a couple of years ago or compiled all of these texts about queerness from the Torah all the way to modern commentary. It's, it's a book called The Rainbow Thread or A Rainbow Thread. Um, I can't remember if it's the or a, but A Rainbow, rainbow Thread. If you Google Rainbow Thread, you'll, you'll come up uh, to their book. And that's an incredible resource to take a look at the range of attitudes that have existed within a wide range of Judaism. Like, so from, you know, the Iberian Peninsula during, you know, the the Golden Age, you know, whatever, like 800 to 1100, whatever it was. I'm such a terrible historian. Oh my gosh, my Jewish history class, it was just a disaster. And you've got this poetry that is not only homoerotic in the extreme, but it is also based on Arabic poetry, right? Like, so Arabic poetry had flourished prior to the flourishing of Islam in whatever it was, 7th century, 8th century, something like that. And there had been this, this tradition of wine, wine feasts amongst the elite, so they would have beautiful wine and there would be beautiful young boys walking around and the you know, goblets and everybody's like done up. It was like so lavish and so sexy and so juicy and glittery. And so when Islam came along, of course, you know, one of the prohibitions is against alcohol. So chick, that had to shut down. You get Rumi talking about wine all the time, meaning the love between a human being and God. So borrowing from that Arabic culture. Well, when Jews and Arabs were living close contact and pretty decent relationship in the Iberian Peninsula, you get Jews going, hey, we still have wine. We drink wine. Why don't we elevate it? And, and they have, they take over doing these wine feasts. And you have this beautiful poetry that comes out of that period, of which so much of it is just like, unbelievably like hot you know like and the young boy and his drippy lips and he came up to me and he like drizzled the wine down my neck and blah 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 unbelievable so we have this period of time where it's like right out in the open right out in the open it seems to me that the further away from a kind of tolerant and safe society you get the more repressive the attitudes become. So communities that were in closer contact with Christianity as a rule 
got more and more sexist, more and more homophobic, more and more rigid. Because they, in order to fit into Christian hegemony, you had to do as the Christians did, which is like very, very binary, very uh, heterophilic, heterocentric, heterocentric, right? Very, uh, what we would now think of as traditional gender roles and all of that. But if you take that compilation of Noam Siena's and like flip through it, you're going to see every single thing. So I really think it's where you are, who has the power, and how you get to how you get to manifest your culture. What's in and what's out, and a lot of that is, you know, who you're bumping up against, what the osmosis is between other cultures and your own, what their attitudes are, what your attitudes are when you are a a minority population, which Jews have been everywhere in the world except for the last, what is it now, 73 years in, you know, wherever you want to call that place over there in the Middle East. The Holy Land. I think that's that's the most neutral term for it, the Holy Land, which is charged in and of itself, right? But when Jews, whenever you're a minority population, you have to survive. And one of the ways that you survive is by aping what's around you. There's no getting around it. It says right in this, por- Joseph, that was beautiful. Um, it says right in this portion, don't behave as the Canaanites and the Egyptians. And one thing that we know the Egyptians were doing is exactly what you just described was taking place in the Iberian Peninsula. They had no issue at all in um, having orgies and, yeah, indulging in that way. And we're told don't be like them. And again, as a, as a tribe that is trying to fortify itself, it went very strictly in the opposite direction. Yeah. And, you know, uh, another, another thing to remember is, again, the dichotomies and the paradoxes that are, that the Torah is, right? Like, we, it's why it's worth learning. Hmm. Because if you learn some Torah, you're going to know that if you just flip a couple pages, just a few pages from don't do this, don't do that, it's a toeva, it's an abomination, disgusting, you should be killed for doing <laughs> Two pages later, it says, oh, don't, don't hold a grudge against your neighbor. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, not your brother. Right, your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. This expansive, beautiful core teaching, right, that is so like powerful and radical because it implies A, you have to love yourself enough to love your neighbor. And the reason you love yourself is so you can love your neighbor. I mean, it's this beautiful cyclical idea of love. It's just two pages after stone him to death. Now, if you don't know that, and if you don't know that loving your neighbors yourself is on the same as is, is, is carries you know at least as much weight depending upon who you're talking to, if not more, then or don't lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. How can you defend yourself if somebody tells you the Torah says you're a bad person, and you don't know that two pages later it says yeah, but you gotta love me. You might think I'm a bad person, but you're supposed to love me. Not point your finger at me. Not make me feel bad about myself because that's not very loving. Not put me down. Not, not, you know, you're not asking me any questions. You're not showing any curiosity about me. You're not bothering to find out who I really am. That's prohibited. You're not supposed to do that. It says right here in the Torah, same Torah. And, you know, the, the rabbis also struggled with that. And I would say that the rabbis of the Midrash responded to all of those um, inconsistencies and the the tendency for some to pick up pieces and drop other pieces. But let's look at the whole. And they came up with this gorgeous Midrash. What is all of Torah saying? If you look at the last word, 
in the Torah and the first word in the Torah. And what do we do with the Torah? The minute we finish reading it, we start all over again. And if we link those two words, we get lev. Israel is the last word that ends with a lamed. And the first word is a bet. And we put those words together and we embrace the Torah and say, yeah, it's super uncomfortable. And I don't like what people do with this sometimes. And there is this too, elu ve'elu, right? And we, cl- we close it back up again. We open it back up. And what do we see? Lev, that there's heart here. That before God booted Adam and Eve, what did God do? Set down at God's sewing machine and made them clothes because he didn't want them to be naked and vulnerable out in the wilderness. That is also there. I, I agree 100%, Joe, that was, that was lovely. You're both educators, and something, just because we just recently came out of Passover, and something that my sibling Ortal mentioned is that we sit around and have these satyrs and talk about where we fit in these narratives and how we can be better people. And that includes how we can be more inclusive. And yet our satyrs, admittedly, even though we do a lot of work of tearing apart the text and looking for all the juicy bits, you know, this year we were still two white families um, that mostly identify as cisgendered. And we have not taken that next step to really open up doors. And obviously this year we were on Zoom, but I'm just curious to know where you see the work done. I mean, Joseph, you were talking about the importance of like how you read the Torah depends on your surroundings, both historically, but I imagine that is also true for today. And what kind of work is being done in the educational spaces to, to open up, to open up, I guess, the Torah? I mean, there's, there's a lot. I mean, as far as social justice goes, you know, there's some really learned rabbis who are out on the forefront of doing social justice work, and they've got Torah. You know, you go to any of these big demonstrations that we've seen in the last, especially in the last year, and there are people with signs in Hebrew with, you know, with uh, Torah verses, Bible verses, saying tzedek, tzedek, tirdof. This is the radical left. The radical Jewish left is quoting Torah. In, in that work. So, you know, I think that the real springboard, the real radical move of the rabbis was kind of lubricating everything that was in the Torah, letting it move and never be fixed. So it's this, this stepping away from there's one way and only one way. There, All the answers are there. They're clear. They're crisp. We're going to go with them. If you go against them, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's always going to be a desire for those kind of fixed, immutable, unchanging stories that B'nai Lappi refers to them as master stories that are going to tell you this is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is bad. Here's how you should live your life. Because human beings crave that. I want to know what's going to happen when I die. I want to know what makes me, you know, why am I, why am I alive? I want to know what is my purpose? Who am I? What's this all about? I want to know those things. Everybody pretty much wants to know those things, right? Master stories come along to give you really clear answers. Here's what makes a good person. Here's a bad person. Here's what your monthly, this is what your life means. Here's what happens when you die. Boom, 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 boom. That, 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 the formation of those master stories is an ongoing human endeavor, whether it's the mythology of your own family or your workplace or your religious organization or your political, you know, um, structures, whatever it is. Most of life doesn't fit into a master story. Most master stories are going to crash for you. Till death do we part. Divorce. You should live to 120. Infant mortality. Uh, as as Benet says, the world was created in six days. Carbon dating. Whoops. <laughs> the big question is how do we deal with the crashes? Do we go into denial and say that did not happen? You know? I am not coming out of the closet. No way. I am not gay. And you hunker down and you get 10 times less gay. You do everything you know that, that not gay people do in an effort to 
avoid the crash. Or you say, you know what? I hated that master story anyway. I'm going to this other master story. And then there's what the rabbi set up for us, which is, you know, there were a couple good things in that master story. You know, a couple of the things that these people who are not our people exactly, but they live next to us. I like what they're doing over there. wonder if we could put those two things together and see if we could find a new way forward that is ever-changing, that is flexible, that moves with the times, that adapts, that is, that is evolutionary. So the big question is, you know, where are we in our life? Where are we in our trajectory of growth and movement? Sometimes you need to be option one. You need to be in a master story that holds you because you can't hold yourself. And it's good and it works and it's wonderful. I have a friend in Yerushalayim who's a very orthodox person now, also still a feminist and a, and a spoken word artist and is awesome. Um, her name is Chaya Lester, and uh, she runs the Shalev Center with her husband, Rabbi Hillel Lester, and they do, you know, personal growth work within the Frum community. And uh, when she was questioned by somebody like, you're a feminist, how can you do all this repressive stuff? You follow these rules and you have to do all this stuff that women have to do and da 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 And, you know, Chaya said, look, I needed it. I wasn't making good choices on my own. I was on a collision course with a lot of pain and destruction. And here I have guardrails that hold me and then I can be as wild as I need to be and I want to be within those strictures. So I get to be the radical feminist spoken artist from woman. And I know where I'm going to be on Friday night and I don't have to worry about it. I'm going to be here with y'all and I'm going to do some rap for you about how beautiful Shabbos is. It's beautiful. So I, there's nothing wrong with being in that. But if you are, if your soul is being crushed, if you're being destroyed, as the, you know, the, the rabbis teach us, the mitzvot are here that you should live by them. It says in the Torah, bechem, live by them. And the rabbis do their little insert here, finish the sentence. They're like, oh, and God forgot to say, yeah, uh, yamut bechem. and not that you should live and you should die by them. Don't die by them. Live by them. If a mitzvah is killing you, you probably should back off of that mitzvah a little bit. I think that there's there's a way in which, again, empowerment to know your sources. And if you are an educator, there's a responsibility to empower your students that they should learn yeah, it says this over here and it says this over here. Where do you stand? As as Bachir said earlier, Eluva Elo Devarim Chaim, Elohim Chaim. These and these. These two guys arguing. They're about like these two rabbis, like they got their fists cocked. They're ready to like punch each other out over this issue. And God intercedes and says, Eluva Elo Devarim Elohim Chaim. These and these are the words of the living God. What would the educational setting look like if more uh, people felt comfortable with saying, Ani lo yadat. I just don't know, but let's take, a, let's take this up together. Let's look at this. What do you think? And trust uh, people to find their way with it in, in conversation with you. I mean, I think sometimes the difference in opinion and perspectives helps bring out greater richness and also helps uh, the people that we're, that we're learning with affirm their own positions even more, right? If we all agreed with one another or found the correct answer, you know, what's in that? Like, how much growth can you find there? And I think this, it's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to Torah study and Talmud study. And, and all of it is because we jump into it knowing we will be uncomfortable and not perhaps find the answers that we are, you know, preconceived going into that uh, exercise with. To me, it's such a treasure of this, uh, this audacious enterprise of, of Jewish study and learning. that. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Well, I um, am honored and grateful to have you both to study with and uh, to allow the space for me to say that I truly have no idea 
and uh, that's where this journey started. And so I'm I'm really just excited to be able to, to like you said, take take the Torah, open it up, and um, come to it from a place of not knowing and being able to study. Uh, with both of you so thank you so so much for your time i wish we could uh, spend a few more hours doing this perhaps joseph you'd be willing to come back again and study some more torah with us anytime anytime oh, amazing rabbi Batshir, thank you so so much i'm just so yeah i can't say it enough grateful to have you with us and study some torah with you thank you ravi for having me uh just so great to sit with you and study and i'm absolutely elevated i wish you all a beautiful blessed rejuvenating shabbat shalom thanks Batshir. absolutely we didn't mention at the beginning Batshir and i also work together at the jcc of san francisco and Batshir man and robin we are the dynamic duo and i love being able to bring this uh, to your audience Raviv, and and uh, I second that. May you all have a blessed, sweet, rich, and dynamic Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. To all of our listeners, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbos, y'all. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Olman. My co-host today was Rabbi Batshir Torshio. Our guest was Magid Jos Singer. Artwork by Julia Pat. See you next week. Baby, you